0: we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. As usual, today we have a lecture episode. We're doing another lecture episode with a man named Robert Anton Wilson. Perhaps you've heard of him. He passed away in 2007. Incredible, really strong philosophical mind. And uh, we're going to learn from him today with a lecture that he did. He was a lecturer as well that has graduated into the next dimension. And he's going to be here with us through the time stream. And also here with us is my usual guest co-host who does such an amazing job. And I deeply appreciate her presence. She's here with me and we're going to listen. Bryn Anderson from Vital Force Herbs. Hello, Bryn. Hey
1: there. How's it going?
0: It's going fantastic. I just want to say thank you out there to all the listeners that have been tuning in regularly, weekly, and listening with myself and Bryn when she's here and the guests, all the people that have contributed. And everyone that's put their energy into helping spread the word and just everybody out there, I just want to say thank you. And I deeply appreciate your support and help. I've been getting great messages, including the one from Aaron McCarty on Instagram. She sends me really nice words. I deeply appreciate her and her being a long time listener. And I appreciate all of you out there around the world, And I believe now 142 countries it's been out there in various forms and capacities. And I deeply appreciate that. And everyone that's been here literally since the beginning, there's some people that have been here since episode zero and I appreciate you as well. And even if you're just coming on this week or any of the times that you discover this, I deeply appreciate you connecting with us and, being a part of this experience, it's been really awesome for me personally to learn from all of these incredible people, including Robert Anton Wilson that we're going to learn from. But before we do that, I need you to do something for me. Go to BlueCobraCBD.com. That is BlueCobraCBD.com, and there you will find Blue Cobra CBD oil the highest quality CBD oil on the planet period because the method of extraction how the CBD is extracted from the hemp it's a proprietary method called the hit extraction method it was developed by a man named Howard Hit aka Big H and it uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases. Nothing unnatural was used in that extraction process. So it's unlike anything else out there. There's three versions. The King Cobra, maximum strength. Little King Cobra, regular strength. And Wild Thing CBD for pets. Because we want our pets to have high quality medicine. I'll say it all the time. I love my cat amadeus he's such a sweetheart love my cat and i just think about if he ever had a problem the first thing i would go to would be the wild thing so check it out we have a discount code it is big h b i g in the letter h that gets you free shipping on any order in the continental 48 united states Uh, outside of that You do have to pay shipping, but you should try this if you've ever wanted to try CBD. It's incredible. It's a family-owned business. Please check it out. It's bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And when you're done with that, please follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth That's the address. You can follow us there. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click the button that connects us so you know exactly what's going on. And like I thanked you uh, earlier in the podcast, please spread the word, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. I think they'll enjoy it based upon your recommendation. (laughs) Bring them here, midnightonearth.com. Okay, so let's get to the bio of Robert Anton Wilson, and we'll listen to this incredible lecture he's going to give about the eight circuits of consciousness and what that means. It's going to be powerful. It's something he developed with Timothy Leary. I don't know too much about it, so we're going to learn together. And if you don't know... With these lecture episodes, Bryn and I will be listening together, and then at the end we'll talk about what we learned. We're going to be taking notes, so you can be listening with us. We're there, just together. It's all happening in real time, so let's check this out. Here's his bio. Robert Anton Wilson was an American author, futurist, and self-described agnostic mystic, recognized with discordianism as a Episcopos, Pope and Saint, Wilson helped publicize Discordianism through his writings and interviews. Wilson described his work as an attempt to break down conditioned associations to look at the world in a new way with many models recognized as models or maps and no one model elevated to the truth. His goal was to try to get people into a state of generalized agnosticism, not agnosticism about God alone, but agnosticism about everything. It's an interesting perspective. In addition to writing several science fiction novels, Wilson also wrote nonfiction books on extrasensory perception, mental telepathy, metaphysics, paranormal experiences, conspiracy theory, drugs, and what Wilson called quantum psychology. Interesting. Sounds uh, very resonant with the things that we talk about. His maybe logic inspired the creation of the Maybe Logic Academy. Interesting. <laughs> and here's a quote from him The Berkeley mob once called Leary and me the counterculture of the counterculture. I'm some kind of antibody in the New Age movement. My function is to raise the possibility, hey, you know, some of this stuff might be bullshit. <laughs> he's a really funny guy. He's known as a comedian. He's <laughs> We're going to have fun with this guy, Robert Anton Wilson. I'm so glad that we're going to learn from him. He's an interesting author. He wrote that Illuminatus tr- trilogy, uh, and he's been in the scene for a really long time, but then he passed away in 2007. I remember being exposed to his writings early on in my life. And I thought it was really powerful stuff. And uh, I'm glad he's going to be here on the show uh, ethereally, you know, through uh time and space with us. So, so uh, this is his talk or one of his talks about the eighth circuit consciousness. I'm not sure what year it's from, but it's really nice and clear audio. So it's going to be a fun experience. So, Afterwards, again, we'll recap and talk more about it. So here we go. Robert Anton Wilson, the Eighth Circuit Consciousness. So Bob, one
2: of your major themes um, in all your works is consciousness change. And it seems to even have been a huge theme in your life. Why is this so interesting to you?
3: There's an exercise I learned from Alistair Crowley who learned it from a Buddhist monk in Ceylon. It's a simulation of enlightenment. Yeah, you sit down and, as long as you can and think of as many aspects of the answer to the question, why am I sitting here doing this exercise? Well, I'm sitting here doing this exercise because I read about it in a book by Alistair Crowley and he heard about it from a Buddhist monk in Ceylon. But why why did I read a book by Alistair Crawley? Well, because Alan Watts recommended a biography of Crawley. And you go on adding reasons, and after a while you come up with things like, I'm sitting here doing this exercise because the Scandinavians overfished the North Sea in the fifth century, (laughs) and they they couldn't make their living as fishermen anymore, so they turned to piracy. And that's why my grandmother's name was O'Lachlan, which means son of the Dane in Gaelic. And then of course, you ultimately you come to because the Sun is the kind of star that has planets and this is the one planet that we know of in the solar system that can support this kind of life. If you try that exercise, you should do it at least three times in in a month to find out the infinite number of factors and coincidences and synchronicities and accidents and utterly inexplicable connections you can find that explain why you're sitting here doing that exercise. But one day I discovered I was sitting there doing that exercise because I had polio when I was four years old, which I think made me look less athletic than most boys and therefore more bookish, which led me more and more from fiction to nonfiction, from nonfiction to science and philosophy, etc., until I developed an enormous curiosity about all the questions that everybody thinks they have the answer to, and all the philosophers and scientists are still arguing about. And so, of course, the riddle of consciousness is one of the central ones. A major turning point was Krasiebski's Science and Sanity, which persuaded me that we can't make meaningful statements about one reality. All we can do is talk about comparative realities as perceived by different instruments. Which includes the instrument that reads all the instruments, which is the human nervous system—not the brain, the whole nervous system. Every evaluation is an evaluation of the organism as a whole, because the nervous system interlocks with the immunological system, the endocrine system, the neuromuscular system, and so on. So that every evaluation you make is an evaluation of your whole body, and separating it into mind and and, and body is uh, a fictitious dichotomy. It's a synergetic process. And after years of teaching this in various ways, just a couple of months ago, I came up with a new way of teaching it, which is the following. Remind yourself that you know the difference between a movie and real life, and you can keep the two quite distinct in your head, and you can control yourself with that knowledge. and remember the role of the editors, the camera people, and so on, as well as the actors. Then go see one of these really gory slasher movies that are so popular these days and see if you can keep you remember all through it, this is only a movie. See if the director doesn't make you jump or cringe at least once or grab the chair or something like that or do some kind of physical reaction, that shows how reactions are reactions of the organism as a whole and what the front brain knows does not control you at all. It just thinks it does. So if all reactions are reactions of the organism as a whole and evaluations of the organism as a whole, and then you start thinking about uh, things like cultural relativism and neurological relativism and so on. And I suppose the major next step in my explorations of this area was reading Robert D. Ropp's Drugs on the Mind sometime in the late 1950s. I've always, all my life, read a lot of books on psychology. It's one of the several topics I try to keep up to date on. And Robert D. Ropp's a completely new approach attributing mental illness to chemical imbalances in the body rather than to psychological factors. And that was only the first half of the book, though. I read that with great interest and a feeling that he was probably right. I still think more of what's called mental illnesses neurochemical accidents rather than psychological problems, per se. And a lot of it more and more looks to be genetic, too. But the second part of the book was about chemicals that change the nervous system in a way that creates mystical and religious experiences. And I thought, gee, I'd like to try one of them because I've never had a mystical or religious experience. It might be interesting to have one and see if I retained my skepticism afterwards, a rather risky proposition, but I was young and ballsy and had more adventure than brains in me. And so eventually I got a hold of some peyote and I had a mystical experience. I've had a lot of experiences which have changed my idea of reality profoundly. (laughs) The idea of reality as a singular noun doesn't make any sense to me at all anymore. What model do you use? I like the sociological term glass and grid, which some sociologists use. Kozzybski called it your system of abstractions, which means a lot if you know the mathematical school he was working from, but doesn't mean much to most readers. Leary coined the magnificent term reality tunnel. I call it a neurological reality tunnel. Everybody has their own neurological reality tunnel, which is why we misunderstand one another so often and why we misjudge one another so profoundly.
2: Can you describe what a reality tunnel is?
3: We receive, I think, more than a billion signals every minute from the environment. Most of them we're not even conscious of receiving. They affect our legs, our arms, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our chest. All this information is pouring in, and the nervous system is making evaluations at different levels, working its way up. One of the classic models is that we got three brains, the reptile brain, the mammal brain, and the human brain. I've heard that for so long. I don't know how far back that goes. I knew that when I was in my 20s, which means back in the early 1950s. If we tried to be conscious of all the signals, we couldn't do it. Because to be conscious of that many signals simultaneously means we'd only perceive chaos which is the usual first reaction to LSD, things turn into chaos. Then they turn into different kinds of patterns. The chaos is because we can't handle that much information and organize it rapidly. So we throw out all the information that seems unimportant, which means we also throw out all the information that seems threatening to our belief system or to our dogma or to our ideology we throw in everything we think can be ignored safely so we concentrate on the things that seem important. Then our brain constructs a model out of all the information coming up from the rest of the nervous system. And we project the model outward and consider it reality. It's not reality, it's our reality tunnel. Everybody else in the same room is constructing a different reality tunnel. About 40 years now, I've been teaching workshops and seminars first on general semantics, then on neurolinguistic programming and various other things, but I have done this experiment hundreds of times where I get the whole audience to describe the hall outside the seminar room. I never have had a case yet in hundreds of experiments where two people describe the hall exactly the same. The differences are sometimes astonishing we all perceive a different world because our brains are organizing it according to patterns the brain has created to organize. And those patterns seem to be created, at this date it appears they are created, by our genetic programs, by our early imprints, by our subsequent conditioning, by our learning, and by whatever experiments we have done in reprogramming our nervous systems, which involve such things as yoga, psychotherapy, general semantics, neurolinguistic programming, psychedelic drugs, brain tuning machines and every time we reprogram our nervous system our reality tunnel should change a little if it doesn't we haven't learned anything through that experiment that it was wasted time if our reality tunnel changes a little then we have to spend a lot of time in the next couple of years checking our new reality tunnel and see if we can communicate it well enough to others that we don't get locked up as raving maniacs If we don't get locked up as raving maniacs, then you can consider your new reality tunnel possibly, just as good as your old one and maybe more accurate in some ways. It's traditionally been part of alchemy for a couple of thousand years, both East and West. The multiplication of the first matter really means changing your nervous system from inside, what John Lilly calls metaprogramming. So after I read uh, Drugs and the Mind and got interested in metaprogramming, I found out that most of the interesting research was being done at Spring Grove in Maryland and up in Harvard. Then the next thing I knew, the Harvard project was closed down, and then the Spring Grove project was closed down. And then the FCC passed a rule that no favorable reference to psychedelic research would be allowed on television, only unfavorable ones. And I began to feel like, oh, I know this scenario. I, I remember reading about this is called the Inquisition. So we live like the scholars of the Inquisition. There are thousands, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in the United States experimenting with psychedelics on themselves to see how much they can change their brains for the good. And some of them are screwing up and changing their brains for the worse. But that does not justify the ban on scientific research. We write notes to each other in code so the Inquisitors can't find out what we're doing.
2: What do you think are the most uh, useful uh, drugs for metaprogramming?
3: Well, I don't look at it that way. It, it varies with the individual. I got turned on to pot in the 1950s in the men's room at the Village Vanguard while the modern jazz quartet was playing there. And man, I always liked the modern jazz quartet. But after I got stoned and come out of the men's room, <laughs> They were playing better than they've ever played before. (laughs) Over the decades of criminal activity or forbidden science or the dark arts or whatever you want to call it, I've come to the conclusion that we not only have different neurological reality, but we have different genetic blueprints that we start from. And I don't think there's a single drug, psychedelic, antibiotic, aspirin, or anything you could name that has the same effect on two people. People have to find out for themselves which drugs are safe for them. And no czar can decide for you. I mean, he can enforce his will on you by the use of uh, soldiers, cops, guns, etc. There's no way he can decide which drugs are safe for you and which are dangerous for you. By and large, among the drugs that are currently controversial, that is to say illegal, I would say marijuana is the safest. I've known a few people that have bad experiences with marijuana, but that's usually because they're combining it with either booze or amphetamine. Very bad idea, never combine pot with either booze or amphetamines. In my opinion, amphetamines are useful if you're cramming for an exam, but otherwise they should be avoided. I, I've seen so many people get paranoid on meth and the other amphetamines. And uh, cocaine is dangerous for almost everybody. But that doesn't mean that there aren't times when it isn't very useful, especially for people who do a lot of traveling and lecturing. But I've never known anybody who got heavily into coke who didn't show some symptoms of paranoia after a while. It may be because uh, there's so much violence in the coke smuggling business. Or it may be because coke does have a tendency to put you in a paranoid headspace. And another thing I've noticed, and Wavy Gravy, great counterculture hero of the 60s, also has noticed that people who use a lot of coke tend to die of heart attacks pretty young. So I regard that as a pretty dangerous one without much benefit in it, except when you're about to go to sleep and you need to give a two hour lecture. I think the dangers of LSD have been overstated to an incredible extent. All we know is our own experience, of course, and all I'm talking about is what I have experienced and what I've heard from others and what I have read in the literature. But I would say that under very good medical psychological supervision, like in the experiments of the early 60s, I think there was like one out of a thousand bad LSD trips and they didn't last very long. Once it became illegal and it was fashionable for people who didn't have much philosophical or scientific training to take it just to have a weird trip, you had more bad trips then because they didn't know what they were doing and they weren't properly prepared. And who knows if it's even LSD. There are no safe generalizations about which drugs are dangerous for which people. Although, by and large, anybody who's ever been pronounced psychotic, even if they've been pronounced cured, I would say they should stay away from psychedelics. Psychedelics seem to make the crazy crazier. Not always, but that's a tendency that should be kept in mind. There was a series of experiments with autistic children where they gave them LSD, and some of them came out of their autism. And some of them came out permanently, and some only came out for a week and then retreated into autism. Now, if we were living in a free scientific society like most people think we are, we would have had 30 years more of research into this area by reputable scientists published in refereed scientific journals. We know a hell of a lot more. All we know is the personal experiences of underground outlaw alchemists who are hounded by the Inquisition all the time and don't dare to reveal half of what they know. And I really think the Inquisition is kind of old hat and should be abandoned. The Roman Catholic Church gave up the Inquisition in 1819. Why the hell does the United States government feel they had to start their own Inquisition? There were dozens of other researchers who were making claims that sounded astonishing to orthodoxy. We cured a case of a guy who was sexually impotent for 40 years on one dose of LSD. We cured a guy of cancer. We don't understand it ourselves but the cancer went away during the LSD trip. These kind of reports were quite common. The conservative medical establishment thought the researchers were being careless or stupid or overenthusiastic or something. And then there is the factor, again, of conspiracy. The CIA was doing a lot of LSD research, and they didn't want any competition. They didn't want people knowing too much about it. The more people know about LSD, the harder it is to use LSD to brainwash them. I am pretty sure if somebody gave me LSD and tried to brainwash me, the first thing that would happen is I'd realize I was under the influence of LSD. The second thing, I'd realize they're trying to brainwash me. And the third thing is i kick them the hell out the door. But if people don't know anything about LSD and they start having weird sensations, you can implant incredible ideas in them. I have several times been called on. By friends to deal with people who were having their first LSD trip who knew nothing about acid, nothing about philosophy, nothing about neurology or psychology, they just thought they were going to have a good time and they found themselves having anxieties. The majority of cases where somebody's having a bad trip of that type, anxious about everything, all I got to do is sit down and tell them. This is called the 15-minute jitters. It only lasts for 15 minutes. What, you've been having it for 10 minutes now? Well, you only got five minutes more, and it'll be nine out of 10 times, they'll come out of it within five minutes. They're very suggestible.
2: Did acid become your major brain change tool for a while?
3: For a while, but I have also done a lot with um, peyote and psilocybin. And I'll have non drug techniques like yoga techniques like asana, pranayama, and Sufi exercises, especially the heart chakra exercises. And for about three years, I was trying every new brainwave machine that came on the market. And I gave up the brainwave machine research at the point they were coming out with five or six new ones every month. And I had reached the point where I couldn't be sure what was the result of the latest machine I tried? What was the result of the machine I tried the week before the delayed result? What was the cumulative effect and what was the individual effect? And I've been doing a lot of work with neuro-linguistic programming in recent years, and I've always had a a tendency to uh, recast verbally anything that seems insoluble, paradoxical, or unbearable to me by examining it with the tools of general semantics so I can put it into a formulation where I can find I can do something about it. Most problems exist because the variable formula you put them in creates the problem.
2: Can you give me an example?
3: For instance, right now I can't get around without a walker and a wheelchair. It depends on how I verbally formulate that. I started out by saying, right now, did you notice that? I didn't notice it myself. That's part of the programming I'm giving. I'm not assuming this condition is permanent. I'm assuming this is a temporary condition, which since it was cured once before, it can be cured again. I learned to walk twice. I can learn to walk a third time, and I'm doing better every day. That's a very practical nitty-gritty example, very meaningful to me right now. But take uh, an example from the heights of intellect. For about a hundred years, physicists were arguing whether light travels as discrete particles or whether it travels in waves like sound or water. And there were experiments that supported both theories. So uh, there were arguments back and forth for a long time, is light waves or is it particles? In the 1920s, some joker whose name I don't remember (laughs) coined the word wavicles. He light travels as waves and particles. Well, this was a joke at the expense of other physicists, but a lot of them picked it up just to express their total bafflement at the fact the evidence just didn't seem to make sense. And then Niels Bohr came up with the Copenhagen interpretation which underlies almost all my work. All my work, whatever I'm writing about it, basically comes from the point of view of the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is whatever model we make of the world, whatever reality tunnel we organize our perceptions into is not the world. It's a model we've made. So some experiments support the particle model and some support the wave model, we shouldn't be astonished at that. It just shows the brain can construct two different patterns depending on which instruments we're using. To ask what light really is is basically a meaningless question. Science can't answer that. Science can only answer questions like, how does it register on this instrument and how does it register on that instrument? That's the way I look at psychology, sociology, and uh, things in general is in terms of what does this model include and what does it exclude? Nobody can make a model that includes everything, although all the dogmatists on the planet think they've done that. If you included everything, all you'd perceive is chaos. Or as Buckminster Fuller states the case very well, scenario universe is non-simultaneously apprehended. In other words, we do not perceive the whole universe, the whole space-time continuum in any one instant. If we did that, our brain couldn't handle all the information. We perceive it in cross-sections. And if you do Zen meditation or any type of yogic meditation, you'll see how long a minute is. You can't keep track of the millions or billions of signals. How many different signals are coming in that you usually don't notice? What I call model theism is making a model, then worshiping the model as if it were a god and hating everybody who has a different model. Model theism is the idea that your universe has been simultaneously apprehended. That's that's impossible according to general relativity. It's non-simultaneously apprehended. So the, what you experience tomorrow, if it entirely fits your beliefs today, that's because you're not paying enough attention.
2: So speaking of models, it seems that your favorite psychological model comes from Dr. Timothy Leary, is that correct?
3: Yes, in the Eighth Circuit model, yes.
2: Could you uh, describe for listeners the basics of this model?
3: I've done two-day workshops on the Eighth Circuit model, and I've done one-hour lectures and I've done two-hour lectures. Let's see how brief I can condense it to without making it totally incomprehensible. Leary's basic assumption is that our personality or our interpersonal reactions results from genetic blueprints as modified by early imprints mm-hmm. and later conditioning and learning and re-imprinting if we learn anything about re-imprinting. Well, that we start out with a basically amoeboid floating consciousness recapitulating the beginning of life and we have to bond to a mother or a mother substitute depending on how lucky we are. If we're lucky, we get a mother. If we're not lucky, we imprint something else. There's a case in one of Robert Audrey's books, a giraffe whose mother was shot by hunters in the, right after it was born, and the giraffe imprinted the Jeep, and it followed the Jeep around and tried to nurse from it, etc. cetera, or treated the Jeep as a mother. Now, this shows the biological basis of the Jungian archetypes. Jeep has four wheels, sort of like the four legs of a giraffe. There was research where birds that brought from the Galapagos Islands where there haven't been any predators in about a million years were tested by having cardboard cutout kites in the shape of hawks fly over them and they all crouched and tried to hide. So that archetype had existed in the birds' brains for over a million years when there were no predators around. They still had the archetype hawk meant danger. So we were born with archetypal images and desire to... Find the equivalent that we can attach to in the external world. Leary calls that the biosurvival circuit. I call it the oral biosurvival circuit to emphasize the importance of the nursing experience. And uh, the oral biosurvival circuit Leary conceives of is basically one-dimensional. You either imprint uh, what I call an infophilic tendency in varying degrees, which means the world seems like a safe place, and you keep on exploring more and more of it. Or you imprint an infophobic reflex in which the world seems like a sinister and threatening place. In the extreme form, it's autism, where the whole external world is just turned off. It's too sinister to be dealt with.
2: So once you've imprinted, that's it?
3: Well, that's the general opinion. Leary's heresy, one of his heresies, was that imprints can be changed with strong psychedelics and the right type of program. Timothy was one of the most prestigious and respected psychiatrists and psychologists in the country when he started his LSD research. By the time that was closed down, he was the most disreputable. When the government started closing down LSD research, every, all the major researchers became to quote a famous Irish saying, as silent as moonlight on a gravestone. Leary didn't. He went around the country raising hell and saying the government should not shut down scientific research and science should be free of government interference and all sorts of subversive and sinister things like that. So eventually, according to Leary's story, he was framed by a cop in Orange County. They planted half a marijuana cigarette in his car and then busted him and sentenced him to 37 years in prison. The regular sentence for possession of half a joint in California at that time was six months. For some reason, they gave him 37 years. It does look like there was a certain desire for revenge against Leary for going around telling people science should be free, it should not be controlled by the government. It's a subversive Jeffersonian constitutional idea of the type our present government wants to destroy entirely and doesn't want anybody to hear of or ever think about.
2: The basic idea is that there's eight, quote, circuits, unquote, in the human organism?
3: Leary liked the word circuits because he fell in love with computers very early on. And from the 1970s on, he tries to use cybernetic and computer-type metaphors as much as possible. Some people object to it on the grounds that they think it's mechanistic. And I had a long talk with a naturopath who told me it would make a lot more sense if you said systems instead of circuits. So instead of saying the oral biosurvival circuit, if you said the oral biosurvival system, it would fit the organism as a whole more clearly and sound less mechanistic. And I've thought that over and I, I tried to write about the the eight systems rather than the eight circuits. But meanwhile, books of mine in print are talking about the eight circuits. So most people expect me to say eight circuits. And so I got this, this kind of uh, drag on, on, on my vocabulary. <laughs>
2: Okay, so you've described the oral bio-survival circuit as... Which
3: has the two polarities, infophilia and infophobia. Everybody's on a spectrum somewhere along that line, depending on their early experience.
2: Between the world is a safe place and And the world
3: is a terrible place. Those are the extremes. There's lots of places in between. You can imprint that uh, this neighborhood is safe, but all other neighborhoods are dangerous. Just think of it as a line Uh, one end is total infophilia, you're continually looking for new information about everything and you're continually deliriously happy about the new, no matter what it is. Oh, a new atomic plant? Hey, that sounds groovy, yeah. (laughs) New new pesticides, yeah. And the other end is the uh, total infophobia. It's new. it's evil, it's dangerous. We don't want it. We're not going to take that goddamn vaccination. We'll have the witch doctor do a spell and cure the disease that way, you know, and so on. And we're all somewhere on that spectrum between infophilia and infophobia. And according to Leary, we shouldn't be stuck in one place. We should be able to move depending on the evidence.
2: But the standard science would say that once we have that imprint, that's where we're stuck.
3: Yeah. And I think that's pretty true, except I think that Leary is right. You can change the imprints, and not just with LSD. There are other ways of changing the imprints.
2: So what's the second circuit?
3: The second circuit is the anal territorial circuit. All mammals mark their territories by excretions. When you take your dog out for a walk, the dog pees on a dozen different places. That's not because they don't have bladder control. It's because they have exquisite bladder control. What they're doing is marking a territory. If you made a map of the neighborhood and marked the places that the dog pees, that's the territory that dog is claiming. If he sniffs another dog's urine on a part of his territory, he'll pee there extra long to reiterate his claim to that territory. All mammals do this. As Timothy said in one of his more whimsical moments, the only intelligent way to discuss politics is on all fours. Because it's all about territorial squabbles. Who's in charge around this habitat? And the anal territorial circuit as a sort of an up down at right angles to the forward back of the oral biosurvival circuit. You're either at the top of the hierarchy and claim most of the territory, or you're at the bottom and don't have any territory and just take directions from those above you or you're somewhere in between. When you put these two axes together, the right, left oral biosurvival circuit and the uptown anal territorial circuit, you get the weary interpersonal grid and divide into four parts. In interpersonal diagnosis, he divides it into 64 parts. It depends on how much precision you need in diagnosis. By the time you've started to walk around the house and meddle in family politics and struggle with your siblings and your parents for how important you're going to be in the hierarchy, and you find out where you fit in, you find out who you can bully and who can bully you and who you got to submit to and who you can dominate and so on, you got this scale on the up down and you got the forward back scale of innovation or conservatism. This makes four quadrants which Leary calls friendly strength which is you have a high status and an innovative personality. The quadrant below that is friendly weakness which is you're basically willing to accept the new, but you feel very insecure and you're always looking for somebody to give you orders and tell you what to do. That's the quadrant that Leary put himself in when he was tested by the California prison system, so they'd put them in minimum security. (laughs) And uh, then there's hostile strength, which is dominant, but not friendly. It's dominant and somewhat sadistic, leaning toward the egotistic and the narcissistic. And that tends to be conservative. This type of power is afraid to show itself. It needs to dominate, but it's very much afraid of the people it's dominating. Then below that, you got hostile weakness. You see them in the tabloids all the time. They have one to lose tattooed on their <laughs> arms, and they've been accused of crime so atrocious you can't believe a human being could do it. Derek Brain popularized this whole system in a wonderful set of game rules. Friendly strength, the game rule is I'm okay, you're okay. That's obviously the healthiest relationship you can have as long as you can maintain it. Of course, you can't maintain it with everybody because some people aren't okay, they're sons of bitches. But as long as you can maintain, I'm okay, you're okay, you're living in a very happy world. And then friendly weakness is, I'm not okay, but you're okay. The overwhelming majority of people in psychotherapy have that basic quadrant. They're not okay, but they're quite convinced the therapist is okay. And they're waiting for him to produce the magic jewel out of the drawer that will cure them all at once. And all they have to do is please the therapist long enough, and the magic jewel will come out. Most of them really believe in it, although not that literally. And then, uh, hostile weakness is I'm not okay, you're not okay. <laughs> That's why they have the tattoos saying, Born to lose or born to raise hell, etc. And then, the, I mean, hostile strength. Eric Byrne's slogan for that game is uh, I'm okay, you're not okay. (laughs) And that is the favorite game of ideologists of all (laughs) stripes. The person is always going around telling everybody else what's wrong with them and trying to straighten them out. Never in a kindly way like friendly strength, but always in a morally reproving way. Now, the first circuit seems to have been known to our ancestors and projected out what is the moon goddess, the great white moon goddess with their three aspects. And that's why the first day of the week in almost all European languages is named after the moon goddess. Monday in English, Montag in German, Lunace in Spanish. I did this in Amsterdam once with a very multilingual class. We worked our way all around Europe, and it's always the day of the moon goddess, which is the mother symbol. The all providing breasts, and Tuesday is Martes uh, in Spanish. It's always named after a war god because it deals with the territorial circuit. Martes, it's always Mars, mm-hmm. Tis was an ancient Anglo-Saxon war god. The Tuesday is named after. And so we got out uh, the moon goddess and the war gods, and the next day is Votenstag, or Wednesday, or Mercolae is named after the god of communication. And that circuit is activated when we first begin to realize all the noises the adults making are a code, and we learn to decipher it, and we begin to be able to communicate. And this, I call the time-binding circuit, in honor of Alfred Korzybski Leary, called it the laryngeal manual circuit. It has to do with making speech units that communicate to others and manipulating the world with your hands. you build a model made out of words or other symbols, then you test it by manipulating the world and see if the world fits your model. You do that just naturally and instinctively. It's a genetic program until you get to school where they train you to lose all your curiosity and just memorize the correct answers the teachers give you. Every child is intensely curious until they get to school. And the function of school is to kill the curiosity by telling them there's one correct answer and we know it already. And don't do any thinking of your own. They stop that by the time you reach the college level, and they, they allow you to begin thinking then, unless you go to a Catholic college.
2: So the Third Circuit is kind of a thinking circuit?
3: Yeah, it's uh, in terms of Jungian psychology, the First Circuit is sensation, the Second Circuit is feeling, and the Third Circuit is reason. And Freudian, it's the oral stage, the anal stage, and the latency period. Anyway, with the Third Circuit, we have a, a revolution. The first two circuits tend to be basically conservative. They keep repeating the same patterns over and over throughout history. That's the major theme of Finnegan's Wake, how these first two circuits throughout history continue to produce the same patterns over and over. Cain and Abel, Napoleon and Wellington, it's all the same story. It's always the two brothers trying to kill each other. This is an evolutionary relative success for most mammals and most vertebrates, as a matter of fact. But the third circuit, by letting the information be transmitted across generations, creates this information acceleration, which gets faster and faster as it goes along. Kaczynski called that the time-binding function, and he said it's what differentiates people from other mammals. And once you get into the variable and symbolic world, if you only learn words, you stay in one reality tunnel or belief system. I always abbreviate belief system as BS, a very, I think a very useful abbreviation mm-hmm. coined by my friend David J. Brown. When you learn mathematics, you find there's a variety of symbol systems. If you can think in both words and mathematics, you got a lot more freedom than people who only think in words. If you're good at visualizing, you have another semantic circuit that worried people don't have. Einstein, for instance, considered a great mathematician, said all of his ideas came to him as images first, then he got the equations, and the third step was getting the words to explain the equations. This acceleration of information leads to faster and faster change, which is very disagreeable to the people in high positions of authority who have this burden of omniscience that they're supposed to be doing all the thinking perceiving, smelling, sensing, hearing for the whole society because everybody else is just supposed to follow orders. With this burden of omniscience and information doubling all the time, they get more and more out of contact with objective reality in the sense of what's going on in the sensory, sensual, space-time continuum. And so they more and more are making their decisions based on the basis of things they learned when they were in college 40 years ago or things they heard from older politicians before they got into it. And everybody's afraid to tell them when they're wrong because that's the way you get a pink slip and wind up on the unemployment lines. (laughs) So we got the acceleration factor of information and the deceleration factor of the authoritarian structure, which doesn't like the acceleration factor and keeps trying to slow it down. And that to me is the basic dialectic of history, information attempting to break free and ruling elites trying to stop the flood of information from unseating them and creating a world they can't manage because they can't understand.
2: So back to uh, circuit three, how does that affect us personally?
3: Well, it gives us the capacity to perpetual learning and perpetual intake of new information and transformation of ourselves and our societies. And it also tends to trap us in the cocoon of our favorite symbolism so that we can't think outside that. Then our BS or our belief system becomes a set of blinders, which keeps us from letting any new signals in. If you're talking about abortion and somebody keeps saying baby killers, (laughs) you can't get anywhere because they have created a semantic grid in which the fetus is by definition equal to a baby. And nobody has claimed this that about any other species. Nobody claims that an acorn is an oak tree or an egg is a hen. But for some reason, in the human class of life, the, the fetal form is equivalent to the post-birth form. I think that's one of the more remarkable metaphysical ideas floating around in our society. So you were saying
2: that the um, first circuit gives us a forward-backward orientation and the uh, second circuit gives us an up-and-down orientation. Is that correct? yeah and so this third circuit or the third circuit
3: seems to correlate with the fact that the majority of the population uses the left brain much more than the right brain and uses the right hand much more than the left hand the left brain is connected to the right hand the right brain is connected to the left hand and this creates a basic left-right polarity in our thinking and when you put together the forward back of the oral bio-survival circuit, the up-down of the anal territorial circuit, and the right-left of the time-binding circuit, you got three-dimensional space, which is the first type of space mathematically organized by Euclid or somebody writing under the name Euclid or somebody earlier that Euclid ripped off or whatever. And that seemed to be the only real space up until the 19th century when mathematicians discovered other kinds of space. The reason it seems like the only real space is because it's the way our nervous system stacks information. And that's why the third day of the week is the day of the God of Communication, Mercury of all time, as the case may be.
2: So where do we go on the fourth day of the week, or in the Fourth Circuit?
3: Well, Thursday, Thought Tog, it's always a thunder god and a father god. This is the domestication circuit. This is the sociosexual circuit. At puberty, the DNA, which has been sending out RNA messenger molecules, making changes every day of your life, probably. But at puberty, it sends out a whole bunch of new RNA messenger molecules. Your whole body changes. And since the mind and the body are one system, the organism as a whole, the nervous system and all of its links to the endocrine and the muscular and other systems. Mm-hmm suddenly you find yourself the bewildered possessor of a a new body and a new personality for whom the only important question in the universe is where do I get laid? (laughs) And that that remains the most important question until you're in your 40s at least, sometimes until you're in your 80s, I hear. And uh, to show how imprinting works on the Fourth Circuit, there's a case in Masters Johnson, human sexual dysfunction, a guy who was about to make out for the first time in his life in the back seat of a car. At the crucial moment, a cop flashed his light in the window and said, what are you two doing in there? And this guy remained impotent until he arrived at the Masters Johnson Clinic for re-imprinting. They managed to re-imprint him and create normal male potency. But he was impotent for, I think it was 20 years before he showed up at the Masters Johnson Clinic. And we all tend to have our own favorite sexual profile, depending on the incidents around our initial orgasm and mating experiences. Ergo, we all seem a little bit queer to one another. I call the fourth circuit the guilt circuit because every society has its own sexual rules. Whatever tribe you are born into, you gotta learn the local sexual rules and obey them, or at least pretend to obey them, or if you can't obey them, try not to get caught. Most people do not have exactly the imprint desired by their societies. Most people spend most of their time trying to conceal from their neighbors what their actual sexual life is like.
2: So the Fourth Circuit determines uh, how we deal socially.
3: How we deal with social and sexual relations. And of course, if your imprints and conditioning are very close to what society demands, you'll have a happy life. If they're a little bit off-kilter, you'll consider yourself neurotic, and then anybody who realizes your problems will consider you neurotic. If they weigh you off-kilter, you're not neurotic anymore. You've become a goddamn prairie. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're stuck with these imprints and these genetic programs and so on and all the things that are going to make up our personality. And most of the taboos of most societies don't make any sense at all.
2: So these four circuits make up the basis of what we would think of as normal human life.
3: Yeah, in the Jeff system, the first circuit is called the movement center. The second circuit is the false emotional center. The third circuit is the false rational center. And the fourth circuit is the false personality. Together they make up what Jung calls the persona or the self we present to society behind that is always the shadow, which is the imprints, conditioning, genetic programs, etc., which are not socially acceptable. The parts that we're hiding from ourselves and others. Yeah.
2: Now, you've emphasized that these imprints that are so important on our lives are, in some sense, out of our control. It's just whatever, either through fate or accident, happens to us during our imprint vulnerability permanently shapes our consciousness. Or, maybe not so permanently, because um, according to Leary's ideas here, these imprints can be changed.
3: Yes, that's Leary's major psychiatric psychological heresy. Leary believed LSD could change imprints. And one of his first major experiments was to take a group of convicts in the Massachusetts prison system who were due for release, take them on mystical trips with classical music readings from the Hindu and Buddhist scriptures in LSD and reprogrammed them into a state of mind where they didn't feel like criminals anymore. A lot of them cried. They wanted to lead happier and less destructive lives. And there was a follow-up study a year after they were released. A year after release, something like 85% of all criminals are back in jail for a new crime. In Leary's case, something like 80% of them were still leading productive and non-criminal lives. Another associate in that did a follow-up study in the 70s, and all the ones he could find were still out on the streets, not back in prison. Leary had reversed the recidivism rate. There should have been a lot more research on that, and we wouldn't be building so goddamn many prisons now, would we? But again, the government shut down the research. They wanted to keep mind manipulation a secret that the CIA could use for their own purposes and nobody else would know anything about.
2: So the implication is he had somehow re-imprinted them to be nicer.
3: He re-imprinted them to see that their life script, their their, their basic programs on the first four circuits, were uh, leading them to a, a life that would remain basically unhappy. If you go on committing crimes, you're going to spend most of your life in prison, which is not a nice place to spend most of your life. You're also going to spend your time outside looking over your shoulder all the time to see if the cops are coming yet. It's not a happy lifestyle. Leary's psychology is based entirely on the principles of hedonic philosophy. What do you want out of life? To have a good time. Okay, get rid of all the programs that make you miserable. And if one of your programs is holding up liquor stores, you're going to have to get rid of that one because that gets you in prison pretty frequently.
2: So, have other people been able to reproduce his findings?
3: Only to a limited extent because uh, once the good reports were coming in, not only from Leary, but from, uh, oh, at least a hundred other... Investigative teams were reporting great results with LSD. The government shut down all the research. All the research that has been done since then has been illegal and therefore not published. But there is research going on. It's like the Inquisition, as I said. There are people, scientists doing research and communicating with one another, but they just don't publish, so they don't bring the government down on their heads. So
2: Leary had found that you could reimprint through using psychedelic drugs. Have people found other ways uh, to reimprint people?
3: Well, Stanislas Graf, whose work I haven't studied closely enough to have an informed opinion, he believes that through breathing exercises and loud music he can produce reimprinting experiences. He doesn't use the word reimprinting, but what does he call it spiritual transformation, but what he means is the same as what Leary means by reimprinting. Stanislaus Graf prefers more religious terminology. Leary prefers more ethological terminology. Mm-hmm. It's a difference in style.
2: And are there other techniques?
3: Well, if you take classic yoga like Patanjali to it, his system is you start with asana, which is holding one posture as long as you can and doing it every day for longer and longer periods. Eventually, you get over the fidgets, the boredom, and all the general nuisance of it, and you find yourself in a very peaceful place. This seems to be the unimprinted first circuit before you've imprinted either infophobia or infophilia. The next step is pranayama, which quiets all the emotional compulsions on the emotional territorial circuit. And the third step is dharana, which is concentrating on one image and driving all words out of your head. That seems to be the hardest step for most people. So very few people follow that. Instead of dharana, there's mantra. Instead of trying to concentrate on a red triangle, which tends to turn orange after a while or I'll go off screen entirely, you take a phrase and just keep repeating it. I learned one from some wandering uh, shaman I met once. shamari shawadi, shamari shawadi, shamari shawadi, shamari shawadi, shamari 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 shawadi. It's almost like a windshield wiper. It really cleans the mind. Closes down the third circuit. So you've closed down the first circuit with asana, the second circuit with pranayama, and the third circuit with dharana or mantra. And then you close down the fourth circuit by taking a vow of celibacy. And then you've got a body full of energy and nowhere to go, so you explode upward into one of the higher circuits. At least that's my analysis of how yoga operates. Those who don't want to take a vow of celibacy can study the art of tantra which takes the sexual energy and instead of blocking it, entirely formalizes and ritualizes it into a higher circuit experience.
2: Now that we've looked at the four basic circuits, what, what are the higher four circuits?
3: Well, the fifth circuit Leary calls the neurosomatic circuit and I've never found a better label for it. The neurosomatic circuit is turned on by bleaching out the first four circuits in the traditional yogic way or by just ordinary meditation without yoga exercises and all the accessories. Just spend 45 minutes a day trying to clear your head of all thoughts by repeating a mantra or by concentrating on some object in your field of vision and blocking everything else out. Kaczynski recommended staring at an apple. Kaczynski, the inventor of general semantics. Anyway... um, The most fashionable method recently is the brain-tuning machines. You tune the machine down from beta to alpha and you get very tranquil and calm for a while. You turn it down below alpha to theta and you get into a pretty deep meditative state. Anyway, the Fifth Circuit, the usual way of turning it on, which I almost forgot to mention throughout most of history has been cannabis. Cannabis is the specific chemical for the receptor sites in the brain where the neurosomatic circuit is activated. Whether you smoke it or eat it in muffins or brownies, it tends to create an explosive enrichment of the sensory sensual manifold. And immediately you'll find a hell of a lot is going on in your body and in your perceptual field that you never noticed before. And a lot of it is hilarious, and a lot of it is sexy, and a lot of it is thrilling, and a lot of it just bowls you over with mystical awe.
2: How does turning on this fifth neurosomatic circuit affect the other four circuits?
3: Well, first circuit, anxieties begin to look silly and paranoid. Second circuit, emotional compulsions begin to look a bit robotic and you're embarrassed by them and you want to get rid of them. And third circuit, reality tunnels begin to seem very subjective and relative and none of them look objective and totally real anymore. And your fourth circuit, sexual pattern begins to seem a bit robotic and silly too.
2: So you gain quite a bit of perspective on yourself?
3: Yeah, you're gaining more freedom.
2: Bob, does standard psychology recognize this neurosomatic circuit?
3: Well, it's one aspect of what Freud called the oceanic experience. Freud recognized it as a human phenomenon, and he thought it was a blissful regression to infancy, which uh, he thought was harmless, but you didn't want to stay there, you had to come back to adult reality eventually. But he did recognize it as a human experience. Young puts all the higher circuits under the general title Intuition Bunches them all together. There's a guy named Kenneth Ring who did a lot of LSD research when it was legal and then switched to uh, near-death experiences when he couldn't use acid anymore. He started collecting experiences from people who had out-of-body experiences or seeming out-of-body experiences or whatever you want to call them. He found a lot of similarities to LSD trips. And he has his own label for the neurosomatic circuit, but I forget what it is. But there are several different names for it. And then in Hinduism, it's called dhyana, the trance of unity, because it tends to make perception more global and less egotistic.
2: So is it one of the effects of an opening in this uh, neurosomatic circuit to increase uh, compassion?
3: I think absolutely Very strange. I don't think Leary ever talks about that aspect of it. But my experience and the conversations I've had with other researchers, other outlaws, other alchemists, etc., I think the beginning of neurosomatic experience is almost always correlated with more sensitivity to other people's sufferings. And I think the correlation or connection between pot and anti-war protest in the 60s was no accident. Potheads were much more horrified by the Vietnam War than alcoholics were. So, kids are being burned up with napalm. Gee, that's terrible. Let's have another drink. You can't say that on a pot. Kids are being burned up by napalm. For Christ's sake, we've got to find some way to stop that. You feel more. I mean, you're more open. Your senses are open on all levels. The whole organism is much more open. So, I think that indefinitely, it increases compassion and empathy.
2: So, what day of the week uh, it correlates with the Fifth Circuit?
3: Friday, which is named after Freya, the Norwegian sex goddess, the Marilyn Monroe of the Norwegian pantheon. And of course, in the Latin tongue, the day is named after Venus, who's the South European equivalent to Freya, the goddess of sexual ecstasy.
2: Bobby made the point that the first four circuits basically are imprinted once. And then... Um, stay that way for the lifetime unless they're re-imprinted under special conditions. Is that also the case with the fifth neurosomatic circuit?
3: I don't think so. I I think the higher you go on the circuits, the more re-imprinting you can do. I think you can re-imprint the neurosomatic circuit in a variety of ways, depending on what you wanna do. If you wanna do it, I mean, if you wanna concentrate on painting, if you've never been very sensitive to painting, uh, without doing a lot of complicated yoga, just smoke a joint and go into the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and you suddenly discover what art's all about. Or any other artist you, can, you care to pick. I mean, you can reprogram yourself for greater visual sensitivity. And of course, the most famous, the thing that made pot so popular even before the 60s was jazz music because all the jazz musicians were smoking pot. And so their fans pick the habit up from their favorite musicians. So the first reports I ever heard about pot where you hear music better. Well, if you keep training yourself, you hear music better and better.
2: So where do we go on Saturday?
3: Saturn's Day, that correlates with Jung's concept of the collective unconscious or the true emotional center, according to Gary Jeff. This is access through very advanced yogas or years of practice of yoga or through peyote or psilocybin or light doses of LSD or through some of Stanislaus Graf's breathing and music exercises or through Kabbalistic magic, you can begin to encounter what seem to be separate intelligences. They may be aspects of your own brain. Israel Rigardi says there are two ways of regarding them, the objective way, which is they exist apart from you, or the subjective way, they're aspects of yourself that have taken on numerous qualities and got projected outwards. And Then the question is, how do you interpret this, objectively or subjectively? After a couple of decades, I've come around to Israel Rigardi's opinion, which is that It's best not to try to answer that question. (laughs) Whatever answer you come up with, your next experience will contradict it. I find it very useful to think in terms of Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. What does Jung mean by the collective unconscious? It's got to be inside me if I can contact it at all, but it's inside everybody else too, right? So it's inside and outside at the same time. And that also applies to Sheldrake's theory of the morphogenetic field which, uh, for instance, one of the things that suggested the morphogenetic field to Sheldrake was uh, experiments by McDougall at Harvard where smart rats were bred with smart rats and stupid rats were bred with stupid rats, and they were tested over generations at maze solving. And as genetics would predict, the smart rats bred with smart rats got better and better at solving the mazes. The dumb rats bred with dumb rats didn't get worse and worse. They got better and better, too. McDougall found this so astonishing that he repeated the experiment more than once. He did several. And it's been repeated in Australia and Scotland and various other places. And the rats are learning faster and faster. This can only be explained in terms of something that's inside every rat and it's outside every rat in the sense that it's in every other rat too. And that's sort of the way they collect the collective unconscious, the morphogenetic field or the neurogenetic circuit function.
2: But what is the essence of this sixth circuit?
3: The experience of transcending time. Saturn was the god of time. The experience of feeling that this body right here and now is only a cross section of a process that has been going on for four billion years, approximately, on this section of space time and maybe related to similar processes going on elsewhere in space-time possibly, it's a sense of immortality in a sense that when this body dies, the genetic vector of which this body is an expression will just continue through time and that the rules and laws governing that level cannot be yet, maybe never will be put into really scientific terms even as we decode the genome the only way to really begin to understand it is by direct experience of the archetypes, whatever the hell they are, and wherever they come from.
2: <laughs> Does this give us an even higher level of freedom than the fifth circuit?
3: Well, if it correlates with Gary Jeff the way I'm trying to make it correlate, yeah, we have even higher freedom there and a worse sense of responsibility. <laughs> it's like the Buddha's doctrine of karma my God, everything I do is going to have effects for the rest of eternity. Mm. If you really believe that, and it's hard to doubt it in the light of most of the data of modern science, nothing stops, everything just transforms. So if I do an evil deed, the effects of that are going to go on forever. The only place it stops being evil is when it reaches somebody who's trained in the Buddhist, yogic, or psychedelic, or some type of system where they know how to transform energy and they say gee i just got a lot of bad energy i'm not going to pass that on i'll turn it into good energy before i pass it on that's known as the great work in alchemy and it's the goal of buddhism and taoism and most of the oriental religions
2: so if the neurosomatic circuit helps to increase our compassion the neurogenetic circuit increases our loving kindness
3: and hilaritas that's a word I picked up from Ezra Pound's cantos. He quotes Jamisto Platon, a virtually forgotten Byzantine philosopher of the 14th or 15th century, I forget which, that you can recognize gods, even if they appear in human form, by their outstanding hilaritas, which is related to the English word hilarity and hilarious, but in classic uh, late Greek of Platon's time, it meant basically cheerfulness good humor, as we would say, but not in the sense of always joking. And then the Pound's cantos, the dominant forces that towards the end of the poem that take over and appear in all sorts of forms, uh, amor and hilaritas, love and cheerfulness. I think I've become a much more cheerful person over the years in spite of a lot of tragedies, which are, you know, everybody has tragedies. I, I think I've become a much more cheerful person because as you tune on to the higher circuits, You get more and more distance from second circuit, emotional, egotistic problems and more and more sense of the unity and harmony of everything that's going on. And your total unimportance in the major picture, really. (laughs) You're not totally unimportant, but you're much less important than you think you are.
2: So it's the, the big perspective of the sixth circuit that increases the good humor.
3: Well, it's the sense that, uh, yeah, I've seen this show before. What, are they they bringing this out of the mothballs and rerunning it again?
2: Is there a kind of harmonic relationship between these two sets of four circuits? Is circuit five a kind of higher version of circuit one?
3: Yeah, and in a sense, circuit six is a higher version of circuit two, etc. Yeah, you might say the second four circuits are the first four circuits with more flexibility built into each one of them. More multiple choice. I really like to use the metaphor of the television set. The first four circuits mean that you got four programs you got to look at every day, all day long. The second four circuits means you discover you got an infinite number of channels and you can turn the channels anywhere you want and pick up any signals you want. You don't have to keep repeating the same four shows over and over. So, where do we
2: go with the seventh circuit?
3: Well, here's where I departed from Leary's system entirely and brought in some John Lilly. In my books, I call it the metaprogramming circuit. This is the circuit where you begin to reach the level of dialing and redialing your circuits to the extent that you become sort of like a computer that can program itself. To talk about this at all it seems totally unbelievable to people who have been heavily imprinted by the fundamentalist materialist reality tunnel. But Christian science, faith healing in general, and things like that are examples of how people's neurological programs can absolutely overrule things that would be deadly to people without that flexibility. Every type of genius, I think, results from metaprogramming. Beethoven broke through the dimensions of music that nobody even knew existed before him. You can metaprogram yourself into all sorts of places.
2: So how does it work, or what is the experience like of the seventh circuit?
3: Well, let's put it this way. Two guys are hit by cars and they're dragged into the hospital. One is a normal four-circuit human being, typical of this level of structure. What's going to happen to him depends entirely on the skill of the doctors and the degree of the injury. The other guy, let's make it a woman, she has a seventh circuit personality, and she knows a lot of it depends on her, so no matter what the hell the doctors tell her, she keeps telling them, I'm going to get better, I'm not going to die, you're all wrong, and she does get better and surprises them. This happens so often that there are two books about it, uh, Spontaneous Remission, and they're both out of print. Doctors really don't want to think about it, it throws their whole science into doubt, I mean, this is without Christian science. There are a lot of people who do it just on their own. Like Norman Thomas, founder of the Committee for Sane Nuclear Policy, he had tuberculosis as a child. And he discovered in the tuberculosis sanitarium that the optimists were getting out every day. More of them were being released and the pessimists were still lying there and suffering. So he consciously made himself an optimist, got rid of the TB and got released. And about, oh, I do know how many 40 years later, when he was middle-aged and a very successful editor, publisher, political activist, and so on, he got a very rare African disease, which is considered 100% fatal. Everybody who's ever gotten it except him, except Norman Cousins, has died. When they told him not in the hospital, he got the hell out of the hospital, the first the first move towards cure, checked into a hotel, and rented videos of the Three Stooges and the Marx Brothers, and had a doctor who was as much of a heretic as himself come in every day and give him a massive shot of vitamin C. And he recovered, and he didn't die. He's the only one ever ever required to have that disease without dying of it. Now, there are some conservatives in the medical profession who say he never had the disease in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's the favorite way of evading the data. But the plain fact of the matter is that his experience and the way he wrote about it and the evidence he collected from other cases was so impressive that at the end of his life he was teaching at UCLA Medical School even though he wasn't a doctor. He was teaching doctors how to activate this self-healing process in their patients by encouraging them to be optimists instead of pessimists. He also referred to it as activating the fighting spirit. And it happens all the time, but doctors don't like to think about it because it seems too spooky. And that's only one aspect of metaprogramming. As I said, you can program yourself into a Nazi reality tunnel if you really want to go crazy. But you can program yourself into a Buddhist reality tunnel, a nudist reality tunnel. You can program yourself into a vegetarian reality tunnel. I did for one year. I got to the point where I couldn't pass the butcher part of the supermarket without feeling disgusted. It seemed so horrible, all that meat hanging there. Then I got tired being a vegetarian and now seeing meat in a butcher shop doesn't shock me or revolt me at all anymore.
2: So who is the person that is doing all this metaprogramming? What part of you stays outside of... Who
3: is the metaprogrammer? Ah, that that is the question uh, to which there are different answers. According to Colin Wilson, it's the transcendental ego as contrasted with the ordinary ego. The higher you get on the circuits, the harder it is to talk about them in subject predicate sentences with the is of identity in the middle of them. They can be better described in art and music, but I do the best I can. So
2: in the seventh circuit, which relates us to the sun, is that correct, Um, or Sunday, uh, we have the ability to do constant conscious re-imprinting of all the other circuits.
3: I suppose so at the ultimate. I don't know how many people have achieved it to the extent of what seems theoretically possible. But I have seen people achieve really astonishing things like Timothy Leary when he was dying of cancer. He was still the funniest guy I ever knew. And uh, I think anybody who thinks we're trapped by circumstance, all they need is to talk to people who visited Leary in his last year while he was wasting away and dying a little bit more every day and having pretty continuous pain. Well, of course, he used all the drugs he could find, legal or illegal, to handle the pain, but that's because he was a rebel all his life. But it wasn't just the drugs, it was the long experience he had at re-imprinting and metaprogramming.
2: So he knew how to metaprogram himself into a state where the...
3: Where, where pain and death were just experiences that he could stand above and look down at and laugh about, He especially laughed at the people who felt sorry for him, or the people who thought he was suffering abominably. He was suffering abominably, but he refused to let that interfere with his mind's activity. (laughs) He had hilaritas to an extreme extent.
2: Bob, in what sense does the Seventh Circuit relate to the Seventh Day or Sunday?
3: Well, that's the circuit where metaprogramming uh, allows you to escape from so many ordinary reality tunnels that The chief symbol for it is the white light of the void in Buddhism or the empty circle in Zen Buddhism or the pyramid in the Western occult tradition with the eye on top. Sensaki Roshi used to talk about big mind and little mind. All the previous circuits are little mind. The seventh circuit is big mind. It's you and yet it's much more than you. And that's why so many people call it the direct, communication with God, or becoming one with God, or becoming one with the universe. But you can become one with an ant. You can become one with a crow, as in the Don Juan books.
2: And so how is this related to the sun?
3: Well, the sun is the standard uh, symbol of light, liberty, liberation, illumination, God consciousness, God intoxication, self-intoxication to some extent. And the sufis uh feel that if you get too far into that without balancing it you become what they call a mere ecstatic which in california slang has become a bliss and uh, we have quite a few bliss wandering around these days it depends on how how much uh, you keep your perspective and how much you just enjoy feeling like god <laughs> <laughs>
2: so there is no uh eighth day of the week obviously
3: yeah and in the hindu system the eighth chakra is not in the body but above the body yeah i call that the non-local quantum circuit leary kept changing his name for it i forget why i think the last the last book he called it the non-local the non-local uh, atomic circuit or something like that. he was getting closer to my label. we were influencing each other for uh, several years there I call it the non-local quantum circuit because uh, one of the most fascinating things in quantum mechanics is Bell's theorem, which has been confirmed five times now. It's not only mathematically sound, but experimentally it's been verified. And uh, what Bell's theorem says basically is that everything in the universe is in harmony with everything else in the universe. Well. More specifically, it says any two particles once in contact continue to remain correlated in mathematically precise ways no matter how far apart from each other they move, even if they're so far apart that information from one can't get to the other in the time you're taking your measurements. So how does information get around faster than light if the things are that far apart? Well, nobody knows, but uh, David Bohm, for instance, gave three uh, lines of interpretation One is that we're gonna have to radically redefine our ideas of both space and time, even more radically than Einstein did. The second is that information somehow travels faster than light, even though energy can't. How can information travel without energy? Well, that's the mystery to be solved, but information is somehow getting around. And the third approach is that it's not traveling around, it's always there. The hardware is local. And this is where I like to quote Jack Sarfati, a physicist who I don't get along with very well, but he does have some great metaphors. And his metaphor for this mysterious interconnectedness of which Douglas Adams, remember, said, everything is interconnected, but some things are more interconnected than (laughs) others. Jack Sarfati's model is, think of the universe as an enormous computer. Then think of our galaxy as a smaller computer within the bigger one, our planet a smaller one within the galaxy. Our body is a smaller one, our brain is a smaller one, the cells of the brains are even smaller. You work your way down to the quark level, and you got this many, many, mini, 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 mini computers. Below the quark level, presumably, there are even smaller computers. And, and in all cases, the hardware is localized. The hardware is here, not there, now, not then. I mean, from wherever you are, is here and now. So the hardware is always localized, but the software is everywhere at once. It's outside space-time entirely. And this is what comes up in uh, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, high doses of LSD, almost any dose of ketamine, and profound practice of yoga over a number of years. It's called samadhi, union with everything. And this is where synchronicities come from, and it's why so many people continue to have psychic experiences, even though we are told by authoritative sources that you can't have psychic experiences. They're totally forbidden. They can't happen, and if you claim them, you must be nuts. Still, the majority of people will report at least one psychic experience in their life whenever a poll is taken. Some people have dozens of psychic experiences. And this just comes from the big mind rather than the little mind, the non-local rather than the local, uh, the software rather than the hardware. Of course, I'm using a lot of modern scientific metaphors for traditional mystical concepts. That's because I find the traditional mystical language just doesn't satisfy my criteria of general semantic uh, accuracy and neuro-linguistic programming of the same sort. So I have to put it into the best scientific metaphors I can find. Because this means that everything I say is potentially refutable. If the government would allow free research, everything I say could be either disproven or made more plausible. Nothing in science is ever proven. That would require an infinite number of experiments. But if you disprove enough theories, the one left standing looks like the only alternative (laughs) we have until we disprove that one. But no, nothing is ever proven that what happens is one model seems more plausible than all the others. But in the more advanced sciences now, we frequently have two or three models. In physics, we got quantum mechanics and general relativity, and they're not convertible one into the other. And within quantum mechanics, we've got eight schools of interpretation as to what the equations mean. And nobody is quite sure what general relativity means.
2: So in terms of the human organism, you picture these eight circuits. Have humans always had these, or are they evolving circuits?
3: I don't know. The Sufis refer to the highest circuits as the next step. Sufi literature is full of references to the next step. The idea is that we're, we're all evolving into something different. They don't divide it up into four circuits, although they do have a chakra system which more or less correlates with the eight circuits. At least if you're as ingenious as I am, you can make it correlate. Like I've made it correlate with the Gurdjieff system with a great deal of effort and strain, but it does seem to work. As a matter of fact, there are two Gurdjieff schools that are using my books in their curriculum, so I, I'm not distorting Gurdjieff too much and making his system isomorphic to
2: But do you uh, personally feel or at least suspect that these are evolving over time
3: it seems plausible to me i think that the first circuit sort of recapitulates bird life the second circuit recapitulates greater braid evolution the third circuit recapitulates human evolution the fourth circuit recapitulates the process of civilization and then the, we got the circuits that are not recapitulating but Pre-capitulating? I think Leary used that word once. It's very good. Pre-capitulating. The neurosomatic circuit is precapitulating our experiences when we're living outside of gravity while in free space and space colonies. And the neurogenetic circuit is a forevision of the extreme longevity, if not immortality, that's coming very soon out of all these scientific breakthroughs in genetic engineering. And the metaprogramming circuit precapitulates. What Heinlein wrote about in his two novelettes, Waldo and Magic Incorporated, which is when parapsychology, in spite of all of its critics, proves its case well enough by teaching everybody how to use these powers instead of just waiting for them to happen accidentally. And everybody becomes their own psychic and their own magician, a self-meta-programmer, which means a, uh, Higher intelligence, to say the least of it. And the non-local circuit is preparing us, maybe, for fusion with other intelligences throughout space-time.
2: So clearly, uh, working with these eight circuits could give us tremendous powers to control our own destiny. Can't people use the same technology to basically harm others?
3: Yeah, I think uh, the major struggle going on is the struggle between those who want to program everybody else and those of us who would prefer to be self-programmers and as far as possible teach others to be self-programmers too because self-programmers are more cheerful and happy and it's nice living in a happy world. I just found a quote from Herbert Spencer of all people that sums this up. I've been trying to say it for years. Herbert Spencer said it better than I ever have. He said, nobody can be perfectly happy until everybody is happy. And that, that seems so transcendentally obvious to me, but most people don't have a clue yet about that. As you turn on higher and higher circuits and become more and more sensitive to what's going on, you, you more and more want, want to release people from the misery. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I don't want to sound pretentious about this, but you know what? Like the Buddha, when he realized what was going on, he devoted the rest of his life to trying to deliver as many people as possible from the traps they were in, and teach techniques that would work. When people think, think of Buddhism, they think it's a religion like Christianity, but they'd understand that it is in a sense, but in another sense, it's much better to think of it as a series of psychological games to release yourself from your compulsions.
2: Yeah, Buddha never claimed to be a deity of any kind.
3: There's one ancient Buddhist scripture in which he's asked directly, are you a god? And he says, no. And the next question is, are you a saint? And he says, no. And the next question is, well, what are you? And he says, I am awake.
2: <laughs> Do you think people use um, the knowledge you're talking about of the, the psychological processes to brainwash people, basically?
3: Yeah, well, the, here we go back to conspiracy theory. The revelations about MKUltra, which were brought out by the church committee in the Senate back in the late 70s, opened up a real can of worms, which is how much of that kind of research is still going on, and of what church discovered, how much was there that he didn't discover. Church lost in the next election after those hearings, and Bob Woodward in his book Veil presents some evidence that doesn't prove but makes a pretty plausible case that the CIA spent a lot of money on something they're not supposed to do, interfering in American elections. They're allowed to interfere in the elections of other countries, but they're not supposed to interfere in our elections. But Woodward seems to think the evidence indicates a high probability that the CIA spent a lot of money to get Church kicked the hell out of the Senate before he did any more hearings into these brainwashing processes they were investigating. What had he uncovered? Well, what he uncovered was the CIA had given LSD to lots of people without their knowledge and did various head trips on them, that they had also experimented with electroshock, with brain surgery, and uh, with varieties of things, uh, well, they they did some research with giving people LSD and putting them in a, an isolation tank with with their own heartbeat, the only uh, magnified is the only sound they could hear to see if that would break them down to the extent that an entirely new personality could be imprinted upon them in place of their old personality. And th- there was a whorehouse, a hoe house. I, I like the southern pronunciation, a hoe house. There was a whole house in San Francisco where they were giving LSD to all the customers and watching them through glasses to see how it would change their behavior. They gave LSD to some of their own scientists without their knowledge and one went out a hotel window in New York and his family sued the government after the church hearings and collected damages they were researching marijuana too, even while they were telling us it was too dangerous for us. They were giving it to soldiers and sailors without their knowledge and trying various head trips on them. One of the goals was to learn how to extract information from an enemy agent that couldn't be obtained through torture or any other technique That uh, where they had a a mental shield of some sort installed by their own intelligence agency where they just couldn't reveal certain things, how to break through that trapdoor code, so to speak, and get them to spill what they weren't supposed to spill. They did a lot of research on that, but they did a lot of research too on how to create more than one personality, just like the Manchurian Candidate, which everybody thought was a fantasy. It was a fantasy to the extent that we don't know who had anybody ever succeeded. We don't know, we can only suspect. But the CIA did a lot of research on trying to create people who would be CIA couriers and agents and do jobs for them and never remember doing it. They would have two personalities. When they come back to their ordinary personality, they'd have a vague memory. I went to Paris. I had a good time. Had a wonderful love affair. And they wouldn't remember that they were at the American embassy uh, or their Soviet embassy or something doing spy jobs. They, They wouldn't remember any of that. Whether they ever succeeded, nobody knows, but they sure were trying very hard and they had almost infinite funding.
2: Well, and if the- Indefinite funding. Given the power of um, re-imprinting that you're describing, it seems likely that they could succeed at it.
3: There's a book called Operation Mind Control by Walter Boward, who has several cases. I feel that the evidence strongly suggests they succeeded. I don't want to say that it's been proven. Uh, All can be said is they were doing a lot of research that from an ordinary human perspective looks as despicable as Dr. is research in Nazi Germany. They are mean bastards, they are.
2: So the um, the antidote to this, as you were mentioning the other day, would be knowing the principles of re-imprinting already.
3: Yeah, having experience at re-imprinting. So when they start fucking with your head, you can fuck with their heads back. You know? <laughs>
2: How does the, um, this Eighth Circuit model tie in with Dr. Leary's ideas about life extension and space migration?
3: Well, to some extent, he thought the higher circuits were preparing us to deal with life extension and space migration, which he felt were inevitable results of the scientific breakthroughs that were occurring and could be predicted to continue occurring from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and so on into the next decade. He felt it was inevitable that there would be breakthroughs that would lead to cures for all the diseases we know of. Now we've got research on nanotechnology, some of which is aiming at building molecular computers that will run through your body. Once they're injected with a needle, they run through your body and check every cell, and every cell that's malfunctioning, they'll fix it. That seems to be indefinite life extension, or possible immortality. And there's a lot lot of other areas of life extension research going on. And then there's the overwhelming probability that in the 21st century, a lot of people are gonna be moving off the planet Earth. And Leary felt the higher circuits would be much more useful after we achieved longevity and uh, space migration.
2: So if you're living a very long time in a very open environment, the higher circuits are more natural modes of being?
3: Not only that, but the lower circuits, uh, which are relatively mechanical, would make for more dangerous blunders and for more boredom. If you're trapped in the same timid position on the uh, bio-survival circuit and the same emotional compulsions on the second circuit forever and the same belief system of BS on the third circuit forever, life gets more and more boring. With the higher circuits, life gets more and more interesting. Ilaritas. Amor at Ilaritas.
0: Okay, and we're back. Robert Anton Wilson. We just listened to another lecture from someone that has left this dimension and is doing their thing from the other side. Myself, Bryn, and you. Mr. Wilson, we all learned together. That was an amazing experience. Look, he's a perfect example of somebody that I don't necessarily agree with everything that they said, but he's highly respected. His books are well-known and well-quoted throughout all counterculture circles, so definitely wanted to bring him into the fold. But like I said... I don't always agree with everything any of my guests say at any time. And, and this is just another case of that, but he did enlighten us to a really cool concept, which is that eight circuit of consciousness concept that he developed with Dr. Timothy Leary Brian, What did you think about that? You made some, uh, fantastic notes there. I mean, you're putting a lot of work in. I hope everybody realizes how much work Brynn puts into each episode when she's here as a guest. Brynn, what did you write down here?
1: Uh, I like to take notes. Uh, yeah, he had some interesting things to say. I, uh, I definitely noted how he, um, paralleled his Eighth Circuit theory with the days of the week and the planets, um, which are I- archetypal energies. And so that was pretty spot on, I thought, um, just f- and fusing astrology, alchemy, and psychology together. Um, and then also sort of overlaying that with the chakra system um, and talking about how the Eighth Chakra is outside of the body, as well as the Eighth Circuit sort of encompassing uh, beyond the realm of, of the human experience. So that was all, uh, really interesting to me, just especially from the time period that he was coming from when I feel like that astrology and alchemy information was much more rare to come into psychology speak. And so, yeah, I thought that was cool.
0: I wonder with people like him who spent so much of his life and life energy trying to make these psychedelic treatments legal, enlighten people to the therapeutic effects of these substances. And now in 2022, we've come so far and he graduated in 2007. So I wonder what he would be feeling about today's climate in regards to those situations. It's changed so much. I bet he would be incredibly excited and thrilled for everyone.
1: Yeah, I think that he would be, I mean, it would be so different to hear him talk today, given what's going on and, uh, having treatment centers and having everyone in mainstream society talking about microdosing or, you know, taking mushrooms before the soccer game or, or whatnot. That would probably be a big trip for him. Uh, I thought it was interesting when he was talking about the experiments with children with autism and yeah, LSD. Yeah, that was the
0: first I've heard about this. So it
1: made me want to read those studies um that that was really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, it made uh people come out of their autism briefly in some cases, but somehow they were able to move their consciousness into this dimension which seems to imply that Autism itself is a multidimensional experience. I mean, we did talk about that with Alex Marcoux in our episode about sacred autism and her experiences. But yeah, that seems to validate that. It's a consciousness experience. It's somehow non-localized. The autistic consciousness is somehow not fully in this dimension. And when you take a substance that alters your reality perceptions, it can shift that consciousness energy into where we are. It's very, very strange.
1: Right. Well, maybe you're able to, you're able to access it from like coming from a different dimension.
0: That's very strange. It
1: is. That's super interesting. And then also, uh, on a different note, when he was talking about the experiments with LSD and prisoners and how they were able to re imprint and that whole conversation about him talking about, imprinting and re-imprinting. He didn't ever use the word paradigm, but it just, it made me think of all the conversations we've listened to and, and, you know, books that I know we've both read about paradigms and how those, I mean, that's the, really the same as imprinting. You're imprinted with what's normal in your family. You're imprinted with what your expectations are. You're imprinted with what your neighborhood, what's normal for your neighborhood. If it's, you know, and, and all those things that, we would call programming or paradigms. And so he's talking about, you know, if you're used to prison and you're used to robbing the liquor store, that's your paradigm. And you get out of prison after 20 years and then your brain is set to, well, that's what I do. That's what adults do. That's how I live. That's how I make my money. And, and it takes a lot of conscious work for us to change whatever our paradigms are. And maybe if you don't have the capacity or time or ability to consciously think I'm going to change my paradigm. I'm going to work on, you know, bettering myself in this way, but they were able to access that through psychedelics and that people were able to step outside of their paradigms or their imprints and see maybe how their life could shift. And that was really fascinating. He said 75% of the people that got out of prison that they, uh, use psychedelics, then did not return to prison, whereas the group that did not do psychedelics did.
0: Yes, it's all very interesting. The imprinting, you're right, is very similar to the paradigm concept. The imprint is almost like the back end of the paradigm because you get that imprint first, which then fuels the validity of the paradigm, that somehow that imprint was valid, and then the paradigm you're... Multitude of habits that you determine are how you function, or at least that was given to you by someone, then is ran past the imprint. The imprint validates it. It's all right. very strange. and then
1: you're in a feedback loop of uh, <laughs> robbing the liquor store. Yeah,
0: so you know <laughs> that is where psychedelics come into play. You can separate the self and go above all of those imprints and and look at those and say, wait a second, that's not. Beneficial, or that is beneficial. I want to strengthen that. But like you said, we're all operating from different reality tunnels. I thought that was so cool. Yes, the, at the neurological beginning.
1: reality tunnel. Yes. Do you ever feel like you're stuck that. in a neurological reality tunnel?
0: Sometimes. But really, it's just <laughs> showing us that each human being, each living being, each conscious being is truly existing in their own universe. Like they're literally their own universe. Everything is created by and for that individual consciousness. It's all an illusion. The separateness, it's all an illusion. We all are existing in that reality tunnel.
1: Right. And he talked about how even no two drugs, even something like uh, ibuprofen, is going to affect the same two people the same way, even though it may have a purpose. And that's definitely the way that I work with plants. Um, and another piece of that is when he talked about how every evaluation evolves, excuse me, every evaluation involves the whole organism. You're not just seeing something with your eyes, like on a subconscious level, there's a million different signals going on and you're really taking it in with your whole being. And that's exactly how, your health works and your immune system works and medicine works and all of that is that it's a multidimensional, multifaceted thing. It's not just affecting your headache or, you know, if you cut off your arm, it's not going to work the same as without your body, all that.
0: Yeah. It's a lot that we've learned today from Mr. Robert (laughs) and Todd Wilson. Uh, You know, I just wanted to bring him in. I've heard such great things about him over the years. He's written so many popular books in the counterculture scene. So I felt like his lecture would be a great addition. It did seem kind of like we were just hanging out. It was very casual conversation. I don't know who the mystery interviewer was that was actually doing the interview with him. Yeah, who was that guy? I don't know, but whoever he was, thank you. (laughs) You did great and you uh, made this episode amazing. So I just want to thank you, Bryn, for being here. Bryn Anderson, of course, of Vital Force Herbs. Go check that out. Check out bluecobracbd.com. It's an amazing uh, website. (laughs) Go check that out. And of course, uh, thank you for listening again, for listening and being such a faithful person here with us, learning every week and, and learning what we learn from the guests. It's just so positive. I really appreciate it. Bryn, you have anything to
1: say before we go? Thanks for having me, Jake. That was fun.
0: Yeah, I guess we'll do it again next time. (laughs) All right, everybody. We will see you next week. Midnight on Earth.